First, you must realize that you have no idea before you can know the idea. We scan across all the frequencies if we want to learn anything new. Let us begin. What has physics done for me lately? Furthermore, the equation E is equal we have now acquired a fateful power to alter and to destroy nature. That's like when you're in physics and you get a dream about saying, oh, this is a physics excursion. What is it all about? The whole of human history all falls in the dust of one stroke of the nail file. You can't really get to grips with evolution unless you realize uh, what an enormous amount of time. Our own planet is only a tiny part of the vast cosmic tapestry, a starry fabric of worlds yet untold. Good morning. You're tuning to what can be described as the best radio station on this blue dot we call Planet Earth 4ZZZ. Beat on your conventional wireless radio by tuning into the classic frequency of 102.1 FM digital devices such as DAB or smart speaker, listening via the Community Radio Plus app or streaming us live from our sensational website at 4ZZZ.org. And of course, you can always listen back to us or any 4ZZZ show. No, just listen back to us, I think. For that matter, using the ingenious on-demand feature, also found at the URL. The show is, of course, no idea, spelt with a K. We have a podcast. Type that into your search browser thingy, URL, whatever. Your weekly dose of science interlaced with all Australian music with an asterisk. And joining me today to speak all things science are some of my favourite science communicators. We have the friendly neighbourhood marine scientist. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. How are you? Well, thank you. And the master, Gabe. Good morning, Max. Max, We've got a lot of science to get through, taking you through the midday. Uh, I've got stuff on some drumming cockatoos. We've got some stuff from our friendly neighbourhood marine scientists. What are you talking about? I'm talking about jellyfish. Jellyfish. Nice. Boxy jellyfish, they I got believe. A memory, I yeah, think. they are. They're pretty boxy. Pretty square. <laughs> and we've got F1 news, space news, a whole bunch of stuff coming your we way. Do. You're tuned into 4 Z, And the show is No Idea, your weekly dose of science. And it's time for a bit of this. You're joined by Max, Peter, and Gabe, and I'll kick us off with my weird. What do you got? It's called side eye. Do you know what side eye means? Bombastic Uh, side eye. Very familiar (laughs) with side eye, Max. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now it's a bit of software. Researchers from the University of Florida, which has a QS ranking of four. Jay is not here. (laughs) (laughs) Four six one, and then you. Four six one. Yeah, four six one. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. And you, okay. Uh, this one's a bit, bit better. And the University of Michigan. 80. 136. Hmm. Believe Ooh. they have found a new attack vector for extracting audio from images. They have called... Hey? Yeah, no, it's cool. How Wait, is this? what? <laughs> <laughs> they've, they've called the technology side-eye. So they're leveraging today's smartphones because they've got dynamically mounted camera lenses to help mm-hmm. with picture stabilisation. And mm. since the le- lenses are not rigid, any external sound vibration will cause some measurable movement. And it is this movement that the researchers are using to decode captured audio in the form of movement when people record video without a microphone. Let's say, for example, you're recording a TikTok video, Peter, looking at you right now, with your okay. camera on mute 
And while you're doing so, you may have your favourite Triple Z show, No Idea, blaring in the background. Unknowingly, the radio show audio is being recorded by the smartphone's camera in the form of slight changes to its point of view, or POV. The vibrations of the audio waves against the lens is enough to constantly move the camera's perspective and embed an audio track. Then it is a matter of converting the recorded POV variations back into audio. Using a mix of AI and voice data sets, the researchers were able to extract... some dis- <laughs> discernible that mean, though, audio. That yeah. you need to have your phone mounted on the most expensive gimbal money yeah. can buy to but it's still gonna cancel vibrate out because all other vibrations? Because it's still dynamically mounted in the camera case. So there's no way around it. Right, but what about other vibrations that are perhaps larger? Like, like my arm. My shaky ass <laughs> yeah, hand. Yeah, 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 true. But if the, if, yes, and right. also, doesn't this only matter if you're filming in mute and... Even yeah, then, right. I personally yeah. don't believe that TikTok is not listening. <laughs> <laughs> I live my life as if all cameras are listening, just I, in case. Yeah. I'll, I'll play some audio samples that they use. Yeah, right. So Please do. The setup was they had a, a camera on a on a stand, so that, that yep. took that vibration out. They had a big speaker turned up to about sixty five decibels, pretty loud, right? Because um, it needed to be loud for the vibrations to occur on the camera lens. So mm-hmm. they had, um, and then they sent it. <laughs> I mean, I know it's, it's highly unlikely. <laughs> it's a really but useful research. That's what we're getting to. <laughs> so they, they sent this sample. I just, I've cut it down a bit. They actually counted from zero to, to nine, but I just did a few. Zero, one, two. And this is what they recovered using AI in the data set. <laughs> <laughs> God, someone's working on this. I don't know what I'd do without it. I'll do another. You're ready for another one. Here we go. Seven, eight, nine. The recovered audio is. <laughs> Sorry. The military swooping in as we Let's speak. Just recap to this one. We've got if you're in this scenario where your phone is mounted on a solid as hell tripod to remove all other vibrations, and you happen to have broken just the microphone component on your phone, and be hooked up to audio that was how loud? How loud? Sixty-five decibels or more, which is like louder than I'm yeah. talking now, probably in your ears. <laughs> In that unique sense, you can recover <laughs> what I'm basically going to say is presence-absence data for if there was sound occurring at the time, right. assuming your setup worked correctly. Okay. Good job, Azio. You're going to have a great time with this one. <laughs> I've, got a couple of mail, I've got a couple of mail samples now. Are you ready? So here we go. Okay. Oh, great. Three, four, five, six. And it comes back like this. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm sure the people on that submarine are very happy. (laughs) And the final one. Here we go. Zero, one, two. You can sort of make it out, though. Uh, Only if you've heard it before. It got the syllables. It got that there were two (laughs) syllables in zero and one syllable in one. (laughs) Beyond that, it got nothing. (laughs) It got nothing. This is about as accurate as when a kid's mouths vacuum. (laughs) It looks, yeah, it sounds like someone speaking the same words into, like, bubbling into a bucket Mm. of water. 
Anyway. You can hear what I'm saying better through a snorkel. (laughs) It's worth noting the researchers say that the study's evaluation shows side eye cannot be used to eavesdrop on audio from human uh, people, you know, (laughs) speaking on their uh, smartphones, with present-day smartphone cameras because sound waves (laughs) generated by human speakers cannot vibrate the lenses enough to generate (laughs) distinguishable POV variations. Nevertheless, (laughs) future cameras with higher pixel resolution and lower imaging noises might be able to capture human speech. And there we Mm. have it. And I'm glad we're working on that. <laughs> I am so glad. <laughs> I like how this is yeah. just still being done yeah. as if we don't already all have microphones yeah. in yeah. our everything mm. that we can film in anyway. Mm. Like what? <laughs> anyway. Uh, can anyway. I, th- there's, a, there's a question to you here, Peter, from Chris. Mm. Hey, mm. no idea, crew. Question for Peter. Did you start marine biology at JCU in 1993? My guess is you're much too young to be the old friend. Cheers, Chris. <laughs> oh, well, good day, Chris. No, I actually wasn't born in 1993, so you bang on there. I was somewhere in a freezer in New Zealand. Um, but I also didn't either study at JCU. I studied at UQ, so I'm just going to throw in a quick little UQ's marine degree is fantastic. Mm. Definitely check it out. It was a great time. Um, Glad to hear that you do have a friend called Peter mm. from the Marine Degree at JCU from 1993. We, what, what I'm hearing from this, Max, is we yeah. didn't get the original friendly neighbourhood marine scientist called we, Peter. Yeah, so we, we got ripped set, off with we'll the, the search out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm texting Chris as we speak. <laughs> the Aldi version. <laughs> Send us a text. What do you got for us, Max? It's my oh, turn. Peter's going to do... Want some more weird? Yeah. yeah. Oh, let's do it. Yeah. I thought so. It's a pretty quick one. Um, after we ripped apart that last one, <laughs> this one's some real science. It's actually science. Um, this is the headline. If earthworms were a country, great start, mm. they'd be the world's fourth largest producer of grain. Oh, really? There you go. How do we feel about that? Essentially, <laughs> they we'll are so now. useful. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. All right, that's fine. That's your that's your weird science move today. Earthworms, fourth largest country. Yeah. In terms of grain production. Yeah, that's right. Would you like more? I'm hearing. Yeah. Okay. So essentially, we all know that earthworms help the soil basically just by moving it. That's a huge deal in uh, soil terms. Mm. It's called bioturbation. You move stuff around, and it moves nutrients, and it helps a lot. So people like worms. I like worms. I think they're pretty cool. Um, but some research has been done. They were like, actually, how good are worms? Like, we know worms are good, but how good are they? It turns out they add more than 140 million tonnes of food each year. That's a lot of food. That's a lot of food. Um, it turns out it's roughly equivalent to one slice in every loaf of bread. So every time you're eating bread, take one slice out, back to the worms. <laughs> Give them more work to do. <laughs> I just think that this is actually really wonderful science that we should be celebrating. Thank you for that. I'm loving the term today, the bioturbation. Yeah, I'm going to... Bioturbation. I'm going to dine out on that one. You tuned in to the science show, No Idea with Max, Peter and Gabe. And it's time for part two of this... Well, Max, I'm impressed that you're back on air, on the airwaves this week. You I had did. a big one last Wednesday with Izzy. The two of you, 
I mean, together, I think it was 11 hours of radio, five for you and six for Izzy. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Uh, all, all last yeah. Wednesday. Yeah. But as part of that, you had the three-hour drive show, 3 to 6 p.m. Uh, called Eat Worms. Yes. Building off our, our lovely worm story. Mm-hmm. Called Eat Worms. How'd that go, Max? It was good. I, I managed to slip in a commuter classic, which was fun, at yeah. five o'clock and uh, talk about driving down the M1 and looking at the Gold Coast sign as you drive down south. Ugh. And yeah. I'd try and pull over to the far left lane and try and read so the sign. So you can really... Yeah. So you yeah. can actually see yeah. any part of that nah, sign. Yeah. yeah, you need to be like a kilometre away, I reckon, to yeah. see it. You do, and yeah. it's on a random hill. <laughs> As a Gold Coast native, it's something in all of us <laughs> that sign is that a sign. beacon yeah. of, of yeah. the... What committees do to anything in this world? <laughs> so then you have to look it up on Google to see the actual view of the light. Yeah, from yeah. someone's <laughs> private paddock. Yeah, yeah that is true. Job that is done. True fact. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was just wondering if you um, ch- chatted about us at all, Max, on the show. Do you remember anything? I can't remember that. I do remember you had some tickets to give away at some stage. And I sent them uh, as home. part of your drive show. Yeah. Oh, oh, no, and, oh and yeah, okay. So, yeah, yeah. What about the yeah. other tickets? I, I, I sent out the other Queensland Museum tickets. Yeah, we sent out ours, but yeah. then you had some to give away on the, on the show last week. And I just, I just caught this moment, Max. Yeah. <laughs> Text on in and go into the running for one of the three double passes. Get going on it. There's no special quiz. I mean, if Gabe was running this competition, yeah, there'd be, like, you know, like, come on, you've got to think of a rare species of emu or something. Paul's... Now, I'm interested, Max. In your world, in the universe of Max, how many species of emu are there? At least it's another bird I know. So I can add that to the list. We're up to six. You can. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, there is just the one, Max. So conveniently for you, uh, you I don't have any uh, weird emu fa- facts about another species of emu. Yeah, yeah. What I do have, though, Max, because yes. I knew you were worried about this, and we do need to expand your bird vocabulary, <laughs> is three weird recently extinct subspecies of emu that I get to tell you about now. There you go. That's where I went wrong. Yeah. That's where you went mm. wrong. You did bring this on yourself. You ignored history's <laughs> lessons. You declared war on the emu. And this these are the consequences, Max. You're going to learn about some weird subspecies of emu science. Brilliant. This story starts where you might expect, but it's going to end up in the mansion of a consort of Napoleon Bonaparte, okay? 14,000 years ago. Yes. If it helps to settle this timeline in your head, that's 50,000 years after humans arrived in what we now call Australia, but 2,000 years before humans domesticated the goat. So that helps get the timeline sorted. <laughs> Thanks for that. Uh, the emus that lived on the land bridge that connected Tasmania and the mainland started getting wet claws. We went through a global period of warming. The Mm. sea levels started rising. So those emus that were on that land bridge that did connect the two uh, started running away to the mainland. They stayed away in Tassie or they couldn't decide where to go and ended up getting stranded on King Island, which is that pretty big island that sits off the northwest coast of Tassie. Mm. Uh, It's pretty big, King Island. Not Mm. a small island by any means, but it isn't that big, especially if you're something as big as an emu. So what happens when evolution has to deal with a big thing like an emu in a small space? Well, usually it either goes extinct or it downsizes. And in the space of a few thousand years, the emus that ended up stranded on King Island shrunk to nearly half the size uh, of our mainland emus. Standing like an emu normally stands, they would struggle to reach a metre in height. That's what we're talking about here. Mini emus on King Island. And that happened in the space of a few thousand years. Unfortunately, though, um, according to the Europeans who started landing on King Island at around 1800, uh, these King Island emus were also delicious. And they <laughs> ate a lot of them. Right. They didn't just stop to have a taste. They they chowed down on little emus until 1805. So like six or seven years after the first Europeans arrived, they ate the last one. 
uh, on King Island. And well, except except for a couple lone survivors because a year before all the rest of its species was literally eaten to extinction on King Island, mm. two of them had arrived on the shores of France. They had ended up in, they'd been taken on this big journey when, yeah. you know, the Europeans like to take a menagerie yeah, of stuff like back home with them. or whatever, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Pineapples and emus, those are the two big ones. <laughs> yeah. uh, and they ended up in the gardens of Empress Josephine, who was a consort to Napoleon Bonaparte, Two of them survived uneaten until 1822 when they passed away from what I believe was old age, outliving both the guy who brought them back and Empress Josephine herself. Good on him. Yeah. And that is the story of the King Island emu, Max. That is fantastic. I've got two more subspecies yeah. of emu if you want even more weird, obscure emu science coming your way in the next few weeks. Uh, but yeah, there's more on the ABC, and a really good write-up if you want to learn more about those, uh, those King Island emus. But that's my weird science for the week. I wonder what they tasted like. Must have been pretty good. Oh, really? Someone... That's your takeaway? Okay, so there was a quote. There was a quote from one of the the, the diaries of one of the European like people who went there. Yeah. And it was they said it was like a cross between turkey and pork. Oh. I think that's what they said. You can't make that stuff up, can you? And they weren't just yeah. eating emu too. They were having these like, what I'm assuming were like weird banquets of stuff yeah. of emus and seals and quolls and wombats and all sorts of other stuff. They ate... Most of them into extinction on King Island. Hmm. Um, so I'm sure they had a great exactly time. Exactly how many colonisers did they bring? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. A lot of them ended up dying of tuberculosis on their journeys home. Hmm. Um, but yeah, there you go. King Island emus. We've asked this question before. I don't know if you guys were on the show, but Coke or Pepsi? Coke. Yeah. Coke. Why? Jay said Pepsi. Izzy said yeah. Coke. Because what about with... Well, Jay's wrong. ...with a King Island <laughs> emu, what would you pair with that? Wait, sorry? Yes. <laughs> what would you pair with King Island emu, yeah. Max? Uh, a Pepsi. KFC, yeah, okay. KFC emu, emu. You tuned into 4 Z, and the show is No Idea with Max, Peter and Gabe. What have we got next? Me. Peter. Your friendly neighbourhood marine scientist. I like that I get to give you marine science every single week. I mean, I do think it should be... 75% of the show, just like it's 75% of our world, but we're getting there slowly. <laughs> if we can track down that other um, marine biologist, we'll be right. Yeah, the other yeah there's another, yeah, other marine biologist, Peter. Um, this is a call out. If you'd like to take another segment and take up more of the show, you're very welcome to come on in, my friend. So today I'd like to play a game with you. Are you smarter than a jellyfish? I don't set very high standards for myself in mm. life, but I would like to think, Max, and I hope you're in the same boat, that yeah. we could surpass a jellyfish. We've got more neurons, least, haven't we, at least? In at least like a Naplan grade yeah. test or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> don't, don't say they've got like chat GPT yeah, <laughs> performance going jellyfish on. Jellyfish are secretly controlling the world. Yeah, no, um, you, are, you probably are, probably are all yeah. much, much smarter than a jellyfish. But a paper has come out with evidence that jellyfish are much smarter than we think they are. Mm. And this has pretty huge implications. So this research was headed up by Jan Bielecki and Anders Garm of Kiel University and it got published this week in Current Biology, which I just, this is a side note, but I genuinely think that Current Biology, this journal, should only be for marine science. Like, current well, 75% biology. 75% of it, anyway. Oh, yeah. at least 75% of it. Mm. Anyway, I don't know if I can think of a better example of patience and devotion than Anders Jan, a neurobiologist who has dedicated the last 10 years of his life to jellyfish, the famously <laughs> brainless animal. <laughs> like, a new, 
neurobiologist, if you don't know the term, means brain scientist. He's a brain scientist who spent over a decade studying something without a brain. But, you know, it doesn't have what we would call a brain. It does, however, still have a few neurons. I really mean a few there. Max, to answer your question, it only has about a thousand. Do, mm. You guys want to guess how many neurons we have? A billion. It's got to be billions, yeah? We have 86 billion in our brain alone and go. 135 billion in our whole body. We got that, we got that jellyfish dusted, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> jellyfish ain't got nothing on us, to be completely fair. Like, yeah. it's not even a comparison. But I, your friendly neighbourhood marine scientist, I love all all of the ocean's creatures, even extremely stingy, kind of stupid ones like the box jellyfish, forgive me, for a long time, I mean, like, okay, they've been doing this for 500 million years on Earth. Like, they're doing something right. It's not much, whatever they're doing, but it's something good. I just don't think we've ever thought that the thing that they were doing was thinking in any way. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah, sort of thought right. they were, you know, yeah. being. <laughs> For a long time, the most complex form of thinking that we thought the jellyfish did was something called habituation, which just means getting used to your environment, like being able to tune out the sound of the highway you live next to or the feeling of your pants. But through this research, we now know that these little box jellies can learn. So get information, react to it, react to it again. But how on earth do you test the thinking capabilities of something without a brain? Well, if anyone can figure that out, it's my man, Anders Gum, the decadal jellyfish neurobiologist. Essentially, you just find a behaviour that they do naturally in the wild, which in this case is avoiding mangrove roots. So these box jellyfish are from, I think, Miami, and they hunt in mangrove roots, but they can't touch them because their stupid little gelatinous bodies get hurt if they touch anything which doesn't seem to be a great strategy, but whatever, they've just learnt to avoid mangrove roots, which isn't too hard because they're these dark towers skewering the water around them. But, you know, to their puny eye system, which, yes, they do have some form of, like, vision, but it's pretty bad. But the, the contrast between these roots and the water is pretty big, so they can sort of see it to an extent, but then, you know that can drastically change even with small changes in water quality. Like there's a little bit of silt in the water, that dark black line becomes sort of grey and an almighty challenge to the jellyfish. So in the lab, the researchers made these images of essentially stripes and black and white for some of them, which to the jellyfish represented mangrove roots and water. And they sort of like wrapped these stripes around the tanks. Now, when the lines were a stark black and white, the jellies did not even approach the glass. Like, they didn't get close. Hmm. They avoided it. They knew that was going to hurt their bodies. But when they brought out the shades of grey, they started having some collisions with the glass. Now, everybody strap in because when the rock hard <laughs> thinking happens. <laughs> After a handful of collisions, the jellyfish changed their oh, behaviour nice. and started moving further away. So that was... Ding, ding, ding. That was the learning right there. Yeah, wow. Okay. And history changing evidence. <laughs> but not only that, the researchers actually removed some of the neurons, the visual neurons, what? from the bodies and studied them separately in a dish. Yeah, so they essentially repeated the experiment, but without whole oh jellyfish, my. they just took out some of their, like... They, it's a visual neuron. It just in your mind, imagine an eye. But, yeah, they sort of just did it with that and saw that they put out signals telling them to move. So, according to Jan, it's amazing to see how fast they learn. A few collisions and they stop. Now, I do want to stop because at this point I was like, oh, wow, that's amazing. They learned something and they're not going to do it again. No, no, no. They didn't test memory. <laughs> they did not test whether they remember this an hour later, 
two hours later, three hours. They didn't test that. It was just, can you learn at all? Can you stop doing something? Which they can, which apparently is incredible. Like that in itself is incredible. It's something we didn't know. And the reason it's incredible is because these jellyfish are in an order called Cnidaria, which includes anemones and corals. They're just like, they're not the most brightest or advanced creatures. In fact, they're like literally only a few steps away from the line where we stop calling things animals. They are so far back in the evolutionary tree. And that's why it's important because them having this, what they call advanced learning, which is kind of funny, may have been one of the most important evolutionary benefits to a nervous system right from the beginning. It's not just about reacting to things, it's about learning. Mm. What I'm getting from this, Max, is that I should trust jellyfish even less than I do already now. Yeah, look, they're not bright, are they? Mm. Fair enough. Except when they're bioluminescent. <laughs> I was going to ask you, music, it, okay? was there any difference? Oh, yeah between when it was raining and when it wasn't. But then I, I thought that was a stupid question because it's always raining, isn't it? It's kind of always wet in yeah. the pond. Yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is different um, when it dries up, I can tell you that much. <laughs> you tuned in to 4 Z, and this show is No Idea with Max, Peter and Gabe. And we had Bones ringing about a yabby wanting to know why they have one massive claw and one smaller claw. Here we go. All right, this is actually a really cool thing and it happens in a lot more than just yabby. So a lot of decapods, meaning crabs, lobsters, things like that, have this. They'll have one claw that's massive and one that's teeny tiny. And there's three main reasons, so I'm going to go through them. Number one is sex selection, which just means the other group, which I'm not going to say sex because a lot of these don't have sexes in the way that most people imagine them, Mm. but the other group that they're trying to mate with likes it. That's it. It's just like... People over six foot, you know? Like like the bird birds doing fancy displays and stuff. Exactly. Right. Birds okay. doing fancy yeah, displays, yeah, that yeah, sort of yeah. thing. They okay. just like it. It looks cool to them. They think it's nice. And a lot of the times this will have like some benefit to them as well, but it can just be purely they like it. And so they get bigger and bigger and bigger because it gives them more chance of having a mate. The second reason is that the claws perform different functions. Functions. So, for example, one of my favourite shrimps is the pistol shrimp. You will hear them when you pop your head underwater in pretty much all of Morton Bay. And it's just this popping sound. Like and it's essentially they use this big claw to create like a snap, I guess. They mm. can have this a lot of pressure and it makes that loud, loud sound. But they only use one of their claws to do it because why would you want both of your claws to look like that? It's not super functional. Um, and then the third reason is that they play we may a lot have of just tennis. lost one. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Third reason is, is tennis or, yeah, they lo- like someone like Bonesy went up and snapped one of them off and chucked yeah, it back in the water. And they'll regrow it and it'll be much, much smaller. So there's a couple of different reasons. It'll be different for every single decapod if you see this. So look up the species in your local field guide and it'll tell you why. I think now, Max, there's been yeah. quite a bit of news coming out recently about uh, the varroa mites and how the, Australia's given up the fight against varroa mites, which are the, the, that yeah. parasite, uh, arachnid, I think they are, that infects honeybees. We have a story that it, this reminded me of from last year that V put together for us that we're going to play for you now that is not just, that it's like shows the other stuff that, that exists in the world of bees, the other things that live on bees, but also inside of them. Hey, I don't want to shock you, but you should know you've got hundreds and thousands of different species of microorganisms living in your gut. Yes, you. Your stomach to your intestines to your colon. That's the place that many microorganisms call home. Now, don't panic. 
Your gut microbiome plays the important role of helping to break down various sugars, fibers, and starches that your body can't naturally digest. In humans, the gut microbiome is thought to be formed by absorbing bacteria from your environment. In other animals, though, it can be a different story. For instance, there's a koala. Koala babies acquire their gut bacteria from their mothers by eating a small amount of her feces. It may sound disgusting, but without this, they wouldn't be able to digest eucalyptus leaves, their primary food source. Koalas are even known to be picky with what eucalyptus species they'll eat, depending on what bacteria and fungi they have in their digestive system. In this sense, an animal's microbiome can tell us a lot about their life history and environment, information which is particularly useful if we want to study how they live. Anyway, let's move on from koalas. The critters I actually want to focus on today are bees. Now, the reason I've been waffling on and on about gut flora is that I want to talk about a research paper on how we can learn about bee health by examining their digestive microbiome. This research is a vital step in the current context of our insect mass extinction. You've probably heard slogans like Save the Bees, which aim to highlight how pollinators are dying out en masse. It's still a bit of a mystery as to why, but scientists believe this mass extinction is caused by a confluence of factors, such as habitat loss, use of pesticides in agriculture, and, most relevantly, pathogens and disease. See, the purpose of this field of study is to establish a baseline for what healthy digestive microbiomes look like in wild bees. This will allow scientists to compare species and populations to figure out how diseases and harmful microbiota are being introduced and transmitted. The bees that most people are familiar with are social bees, meaning bees that live in colonies. Perhaps the most well-known bee is the European honeybee, which is pretty much the poster child for the Save the Bees movement. However, in Australia alone, we have over 2,000 species of native bees, some of which are social, but many of which are actually solitary. One such bee is the carpenter bee, which, instead of living in groups in hives, lives alone and makes little nests by burrowing into woody plant stalks. The study in question was published in the journal Communications Biology, and examined three different carpenter bee species, variously native to North America, Asia, and Australia. They found that carpenter bees, like humans, get their microbiome from their environment where they forage for food. In contrast, social bees, like honeybees, will inherit their bacteria from their nestmates. In this way, solitary bees can act as a better environmental indicator than social bees because their microbiome is more directly linked to the state of the environment they're in. The researchers found that gut bacteria were so highly specific to each location that out of the Australian bees they sampled, they could actually identify which location they collected each bee based purely on what bacteria and fungi were in its microbiome. Insofar as identifying important bacteria for good bee health, the researchers found that the bacteria group Lactobacillus was present across most bee lineages, and was super important for protecting against fungal pathogens, boosting the immune system, and facilitating nutrient uptake. This research is really foundational and helps contextualize other research. For example, another recent study published in the journal Environmental DNA found that carpenter bees in cities had much less Lactobacillus than their wild counterparts. This is just one example of how research can build upon itself to help us solve problems we're facing today. Hopefully this is just the beginning of our quest to save the bees. You're tuning to 4ZZZ, and this show is No Idea, your weekly dose of science with me, Max, and Gabe. Peter stepped out, Izzy is MIA, and Jay is not coming in. <laughs> So it's time for... Welcome to Community Radio. What do you got, Max? <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, it's time for the best part of the show. Loosely defined as science, yeah, you already know. Everybody listens to four triple Z just to hear us talking about what Butters just did. Subscriptions just keep rolling like the tires on a car. But something tells me that our science careers won't go far. But unlike an engine, I will keep you in suspension. We're all here to hear him talk, so let's give him attention. You're not ready for when he starts rapping. Gonna hand the mic to Max, and I'm not talking Van Staffen. It's lights out, and away we go. Sal GP happened on the weekend, Gabe. It was in Italy. Did it now? Italy, yeah. The final race, they have like five fleet races and then a final race. Had The final race uh, had Team USA versus Australia versus Great Britain or GBR. And whoever wins the final race wins the regatta. However, the race was abandoned because it was the, light, the winds were so light. And so on aggregate, so counting up, uh, the points from the fleet races, GBR or Great Britain, uh, won the regatta, unfortunately. Uh, Australia was second. Um, but, uh, you know, the British boat has arguably the world's best sailor on board, Sir Ben Ainsley. And he actually showed why he is the wind whisperer. I mean, he could pick up the wind shifts in the fluky conditions like nobody else could. And uh, Australia skipper Tom Slingsby conceded as much, saying that GBR deserved to win, even though it was a disappointing not to have a result in the final race. So the F-50 fleet, they're the catamarans, will now meet uh, in Spain for the Spain Sail GP, which will happen in October 14-15. MotoGP also happened on the weekend. The first ever MotoGP to be held in which country? American game. Oh. Yeah. Now there's a, in, wow. Inaugural um, MotoGP race. Inaugural MotoGP. Yeah. They've, they've surely polished every country in Europe already that can host anything <laughs> that big. That's <laughs> right. My guess is it's going to be in Asia somewhere. I'm yeah. going to go Indonesia. Close. India. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow, they hadn't had one before. No. And they used the old circuit, the old F1 circuit. So, yeah, in Buddha. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, the Ducatis locked out the the... the Front two rows with the they were in the top four, would you believe? So the top four bikes were all Ducatis. <laughs> so they obviously <laughs> loved that circuit, and it became down to a battle be- between Bezeki and a satellite rider uh, George Martin. Bezeki went on to win. Aussie Jack Miller he qualified in sixteenth and finished fourteenth in the main race. They also had a sprint race, but I don't have the results for that. F one hell also mm. happened on the on the weekend. The big one go in, J- in Japan. I'm thinking every Australian should have watched it because it was actually televised during a Sunday afternoon. Didn't have to stay up till 10 or 11 o'clock at night to watch it. And for those who missed it, it was business as usual for Max Verstappen, securing another win, which means Red Bull have been crowned F1 Constructors Champions for 2023. And the McLaren McLaren team. The dominance, right? Like just at this stage to get it. And it sucks to watch because... Like we've said this before. Yeah. It sucks to watch because the same person wins every time. But then you look back at these, you look back at times like this and just like marvel at how dominant one driver can be, even though the team's in a great position as well. Yeah. Just crazy that this one person can win. What, how many has he won now? Like 10 out of the 12 races this season? Or something, something like that. Yeah. Something, something ridiculous. stupid. Yeah. yeah. Because his fellow, um, what, his partner, what do you call him? His co, not a co driver, his teammate, teammate yeah, uh, Perez. He's in the same machinery. And not performing at all. Yeah. So, man meets machine. I don't know. What is it? Anyway, the McLaren team featured well. They uh, they got second and third. 
and that meant that Aussie Oscar Piastri, that was his first podium. His first podium. And, I mean, we're getting so spoiled at the moment for the amount of amazing Aussie drivers we've had. Mm. He becomes the fifth Australian driver to, I think, ever get a podium in Formula One. Top yes, three yeah. spot. And we've had three of them in a row for the last, I don't know, 20 years or so. Weber, yeah. Ricardo, and Piastri. We are yeah. sport rotten and it's pretty amazing to see another Australian come in and, and start mm. doing well. Keeps yeah. you interested. It does. And Mr. Stalin texted in saying, racing, on board, please stop. No. <laughs> <laughs> last week on the show, if you didn't shoot well, two weeks ago. we covered the... Two weeks ago. I don't know. Last, last week. week. Yeah, last, last week. Last week yeah, on the yeah, show, yeah, we yeah. covered the Ig Nobel yeah. Awards, yeah. The, the answer to the Nobel Prizes, which give, you know, uh, awards out to, to science that makes you laugh and then makes you think. That's their little slogan that they go by. <laughs> and they have a whole tradition of letting people come on stage. And yeah. there's like a, a small child who comes on stage and people run over time in their speech and they say, please stop on board. And we let you last week come in with the text in, please stop on board. Max, we've never had more text in in a single <laughs> show, I don't think. We've <laughs> done all, all the stuff you're supposed to do on radio. We've done the giveaways. Yeah. We've done all the engagement stuff. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing <laughs> got text in, like inviting people to tell us they were bored and to stop. They love that. Ground rules. Mm. One, I don't think our egos can take that for more than once a year. You get that <laughs> once every 52 weeks for the Ig Nobel show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, on this day, the 27th of September... Back in 1908, the first Model T rolled out. So that's made by Ford. Um, mm -hmm. You want some fun facts about a Model T? Oh, so badly, Max. <laughs> it was the first automobile to use mass production, which lowered its cost and increased its availability. Famously, it was said it was available in any colour, so long it, it was black, and had various body styles such as four-door touring model or two-door roadster. Being the first affordable automobile, it dominated the US car market for many years with more than 15 million units sold by 1927 when it ended production. So pretty good run from 1908 to 1927. I think that's been surpassed <laughs> by the VW Beetle, but yeah. And finally, the Valtteri Bottas and Roman Grosjean report another DNF for Valtteri on the weekend in F1 mm. after his Alfa Romeo was taken out by Williams driver Logan Sargent. What do you reckon about Logan Sargent? You reckon he's going to be around next year or...? In Formula One, who knows, Max? Who knows what goes on in the minds of the people who hire Formula One drivers, mm. but it's not anything any, any of us can guess. Exactly. The American, yeah, might, might stay in because he's American, might get dropped because he's not the best driver. <laughs> and Roman Grosjean is tipped for an IndyCar drive next year with Dale Coyne Racing on a side note. He has yet to have his test drive of a Formula One car offered by Mercedes Toto Wolff back in the day after he had his big crash. Maybe once Mercedes gets back to their winning ways, the Phoenix may get a drive. So what year do you reckon that the Phoenix will be allowed to drive an F1 car? I'm thinking 2025 or 2026. Sure, Max. <laughs> Another guess. Anyway, that is it for the matter out this week. I've got some drumming science coming up for you next, Max, mm. but let's play a tune. You tune into 4ZZZ, and the show is No Idea with Max and Gabe. What do you got for us, Gabe? What I've got for you, Max, is some drumming science, and I've got a question for you to mm. kick it off. You can play along if you're listening in. What can you tell me about who is making this sound?
You got anything for me? I got this. You ready? <laughs> it does sound a lot like your signs from before, reconstructing yeah. audio from images. Yeah. But nothing? Nothing. Nothing about who's making that? All right, I'll give you one more. This is a second clip. Tell me who's making this sound. An ibis. Yeah, you didn't get it, Max. But that's, to be fair, <laughs> just confirms for everyone listening along at home that Max is not a female palm cockatoo, which is something that I think we just needed to check in this morning with. Because if you were, Max, you'd know that those two sounds were made by a male palm cockatoo. Better yet, according to new research, you'd probably know exactly which male palm cockatoo was making each of those drum beats right. just by the sound of it. So palm cockatoos are these big black cockatoos, very gorgeous looking black crest on the top of their heads and bare cheeks that they can flush bright red uh they've got a big long hook on their beak too and uh, you find them nowhere else on earth except some bits of lowland new guinea a couple of offshore islands around there and at the very top of the cape right up in far north queensland and when the males are trying to impress a female they do something pretty special uh, they make a tool and create what we might call music with it the male will often make a really big show of like breaking off a branch um, or a seed pod in front of the female who'll then whittle it down, test it a bit, whittle it some more until he's made what he reckons is the perfect drumstick in his eyes. Mm. Um, they, they, apparently they can break off like about three centimetre wide branches, which is pretty decent if you actually like yeah. look at, think about yeah. how big that is. A good, good hefty stick that they can snap off for a small <laughs> little cockatoo. And each bird crafts its drumsticks differently. Some male palm cockatoos like long, thin, thin twigs. Others like short, stubby twigs. Most like to throw in a seed pot every now and then too, which sounds uh, a bit like the second one you heard before, Max. Yeah. A little bit like this. That's the seed pot. This one is the stick. I reckon, I reckon if we gave these sound bites to Jay, he'd be yep. able to make some sort of song up with it. <laughs> I reckon so too, Max. <laughs> they, uh, I'm just going to let one play as we keep going here. This is some more seed pod drumming for you. Uh, but it's not just the drumstick that they'll change. Mm. Uh, like this is what you're hearing now, the seed pod that they're mm. using as the drumstick, but they'll also have their own unique rhythm that they drum at. Each male palm cockatoo mm. drums at its own rhythm with its own stick, which means mm. by combining those two things, the unique drumstick that it's crafted uh, and the unique rhythm it's tapping at, the female palm cockatoos might be able to identify males just by the sound of its drumming. The researcher who was leading some of this reckons he can also determine which male palm cockatoo it is by the yeah. sound of the drumming alone. Yeah. And that is something that they say has been seen in no other bird species around mm. the world. It's one of the closest examples to human instrument use that's been observed in the animal kingdom. And they say it takes a male palm cockatoo at least 10 years mm. of primarily hanging around their fathers to learn how to do this, like how uh -huh. to craft the stick, pick yeah. out the stick, craft it, hone it down, whittle it into the yeah. sound that they want, and then they'll, they'll apparently take a lot of the characteristics of their father's drumbeat and put it into their <laughs> own drumbeat rather than learn Which it from others. Sense, yeah. And even after all that, the females can be very picky about how mm. impressive they find showy mating skills like mm. these drumming skills, which is just one part of 
of a huge repertoire they do to, to impress females. Mm. And it's one of the reasons why these palm cockatoos have really low birth rates. It's the lowest of any cockatoo. The females lay a single egg every two years. They're often lost before it successfully leaves the nest. They only get a successful fledge, like a, a, a young one leaving the nest every couple of years or so. Mm. So, Max, I thought I'd close this out by giving you one last display. Yes. And I want you to give this a rating. Put yourself in the female palm cockatoo's <laughs> shoes now. You didn't do too well at the start, but no. this is the full display. You got some calls, you got some drumming. Yeah. I want you to give this a rating. And what what sort of plumage am I seeing as well? Anything or? Oh, the plumage action, yeah, very, very, very dark black looking plumage. It's yeah. getting the the crest is getting pushed up into the air, yeah, and the yeah. head is bobbing around like the cockatoos. Do you getting a whole dance and show yeah. as you get that? I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up my egg for that. Nah, nah. Not good enough for Max. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try and find some more for I'd you next week. I'd rather the species to die to. than. <laughs> 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 anyway. Those clips are from Dr. Christina Zedenek, one of the researchers involved in this. I'm just going to run through a couple of the uh, comments that we had. So Dave from Eco Radio, he said it was a cockatoo. So, yeah, close enough, I reckon. Picked it. Yeah, and then um, Mr. Stalin, course, came with his famous line, it's clearly a chicken riding a bicycle. And then... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, DJ Oz says this drumming is played on the station's ambient music show Rust's Satellites every week. So there you go. That maybe that's where they recorded it from. It could be. <laughs> Job done. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, you should be worried, Max, because if we if we get a robot that just sits there and laughs, you're basically obsolete. Oh, yeah, just so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you tuned into Four Triple Z, and the show is no idea with me, Max, Peter. And Gabe. And we and thought we we'd taken... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, we thought we'd take advantage, Max, of the fact that our friendly neighbourhood marine scientist is on the show with us today to fix a bit of a, an oversight we made in last week's show, which is we got so distracted by the Ig Nobel science and covering all of that that we did miss what was probably the biggest science news of the week, which was that Australia has formally now gone into El Nino, according to the Bureau of Meteorology. Yes. Uh, the bomb, bomb, bomb. Yeah, the bomb, <laughs> bomb, bomb, indeed. And to explain what the bomb, bomb, bomb of El Nino means, yes. Peter... What do you got for us? Okay, so we talked about this the past couple of years, but we've been talking about it as La Nina because that's what we've had for the past couple of years. And mm. a lot of Aussies will remember this as, oh my God, it's been raining. <laughs> it's still raining. It's raining and flooding. Wow, there's just so much water. How is there this much water? I don't think this is really summer. And a lot of Aussies will also probably say, when you talk to especially foreigners and tourists about what the Aussie summer feels like, everyone will be like, oh my God, the crushing heat. The crushing, all-consuming heat. It's so dry. I remember the fires of my youth. Everything was on fire, right? Like, this is sort of our natural bread and butter. But Australia actually gets both. We have super, super wet. We have super, super dry. It is called the El Nino Southern Oscillation. And you might be wondering, mm, why is it in Spanish? Well, it's because the Spanish-speaking countries of South America really actually named this and came up with this phenomenon terminology because it affects the entire world. It doesn't actually just affect us. Wow, amazing. Imagine that. And essentially what it is is that there are two different pressures and temperatures on the opposite sides of the Pacific Ocean. Again, it is a ocean-driven meteorology phenomenon. Lots of long words. Essentially, all you need to know is that the ocean's important. So we are going into an El Nino. For us, that means it's going to be incredibly hot, incredibly dry, lots of fire weather, and most likely bleaching on the coral reefs up north. 
But for the other side of the Pacific, South America, it means really wet, like lots of rain, which is kind of the opposite. So it goes back and forth. And essentially, there's just this pressure differential. So in a normal year, and there are normal years, there are years without this, trade winds sort of blow from east to west, pushing the warm seawater and the moisture winds over towards the west side of the Pacific, which is where we are, and cooling the eastern Pacific. However, when this changes, the pool of warm water and the strength of the trade winds changes, and it can get a lot stronger. And essentially, it just means that these trade winds push and get stronger and they change. Now, we're not going to have rainfall this year because the water isn't going to be warm enough to create this rainfall. It's not going to evaporate that much. It's going to be sort of technically cooler water, which means that the air is going to be a lot hotter and drier. Um, yeah, this changes all the time. We actually have new science saying that this is probably going to stick around for a lot longer than they used to. The changes used to happen pretty frequently and now they might stick around longer and be stronger than ever. So brace yourselves. Brace yourselves indeed. And you know what, Max? Mm. If the world's going to be warming up for us Aussies, mm. I think it's only time to remind people how they can chill out on community radio nice. with a subscription <laughs> to Fortune Plus said. How good's that? We only how you're going to do it. Yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> That's the segue of all segues. We'll take you from depressing El Nino science into warm subscribing to 4 Z. Yes. That warm inner glow <laughs> Warm inner glow of climate change. Z. Max, it is what keeps us on air. We're all volunteers doing this for a yeah. bit of fun um, and to bring you some science news every week. But the, the way we can actually do that and have a studio to walk into and airwaves to beam out on is because of subscriptions. People subscribing to 4 Z. Um, which you can do, Max, what's the web page? Is 4zzz.org.au forward slash support. And you can subscribe for as little as $30 right up until $500. Take your pick. And there's also a September prize, which I think is some... Uh, I haven't got it in front of me at the moment. Something very good and very, very desirable yeah, yeah. that you all want. <laughs> but you can, you can lock that in when you sign up for your subscription. You'll, it'll all be laid out for you there. You're tuned into 4ZZZ and the show is No Idea with me, Max, Peter and Gabe. I guess it's time for a bit of this No Idea Space News. What do you got? MSR. Do you know what MSR is? MSR. I haven't a clue. Mars Sample Return. Oh my oh, God. I saw this. NASA. Is this the, the tubes from the rover? <laughs> yeah, it's right. The is it really? The titanium tubes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on. Anyway, NASA is now delaying plans to move... Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the program. I didn't see this. This is something else. Never mind. They were going to move it to the next phase, but they had an independent review of it and they found serious issues with its technical readiness, costs and schedule. NASA released on September 21 the final report of an independent review board it commissioned earlier this year to examine the state of the program to pick up samples cached by the Perseverance rover and return them back to Earth. The report concluded there was a near zero probability that the two main elements of MSR, a sample retrieval lander developed by NASA and an Earth return orbiter, developed by European Space Agency, will be ready for launch in 2027 or 2028 as currently projected. And also projected <laughs> budgets for the MSR are also insufficient. 
I just love the confidence they had, right? Like yeah. they built yeah, amazing yeah. Perseverance exactly. Rover. The ingenuity yeah. of Chopper to go with it. Yeah, yeah. And the Rover's whole thing was, or one of its things was, it takes these cores, shoves them into titanium tubes, those samples get back to Earth, right? Yes, and we started. Didn't plan the return <laughs> bit. Didn't get that far. They just yeah. got the Rover. They got the. They eventually got it putting stuff into the titanium tubes, which yes. took a while. The first tube came out empty. But they just there's Wonderful. just titanium tubes of Mars dust sitting on Mars. Yeah. And now, NASA has a kind and of plan to get the And they'll stay there for back. the moment, yeah. And they'll stay there till what, yeah. at well, least 2027? they're not 2027. going anywhere, are they? <laughs> <laughs> they're well, not going to move. We don't know. What are you we afraid of? <laughs> at least you know where they are. Artemis 2. Uh-huh. This is us trying to get back to the moon or America trying to get back to the moon. And um, the crew and NASA successfully, <laughs> this is what they did, right? The mission's like two years away. The crew and NASA successfully conducted a simulated launch day test at the Kennedy Space Center, preparing for their upcoming moon mission, which I say will not happen until 2025, but they're, they're sort of slated in November 2024. Mm-hmm. The Artem- this is what they did, right? The Artemis II crew and teams with NASA's Exploration Ground Systems Program successfully completed the first in a series of integrated ground system tests at the agency's Kennedy Space De- uh, Center in Florida. The crew awoke at the crew headquarters inside Kennedy's yeah. Neil Armstrong Operations and Checkouts building before putting on their test versions of their Orion spacesuits. Then they hopped into the cars that would take them to launch pad 39B. <laughs> okay. Amazing. Which is, I'm really hoping there's a lot more steps coming after this. <laughs> Which is 14.5 kilometres away. They needed two cars to transport them. So we had Wiseman and Glover in the first car and Kosh and Hansen in the second car. And that was the test. They practised the commute. Basically putting, oh. putting their spacesuits on and driving to the launch pad. God, imagine if they got that wrong, though. I really, I really wow. thought the joke was going to be that they tested someone doing the countdown 10, 9, 8, 7, 6 to make, because that's Maybe probably a pretty did. stressful job. But, but they Dave, just got it's into... it's just not as stressful as being in a car yeah. in an everyday situation in an outfit you're not comfortable in. Wow. And it's on. Two years away, do they say, is it? Yeah. You said end of 2024. That's next year. Yeah, next well, year. Yeah, it's not going to fly. It's not going to fly until way, 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 way away. Anyway, they're still... Yeah, be- but, but they're- they will be ready to get to the launch pad in a year's time. <laughs> Tick. On the checklist <laughs> of readiness. <laughs> anyway, they're building the SLS booster that will push the Artemis to Orion around the moon. And the, um, they've uh, secured the uh, four RS-25 engines, which were repurposed from the shuttle missions. And fingers crossed the booster will not leak any hydrogen when it comes to its wet dress rehearsal, which uh, Artemis 1 uh, booster had all those issues oh. with. And mm. you know what their solution was? Because they couldn't tighten up the joints any, any further. Didn't they just leave it? They just ran at a lower pressure. <laughs> really? Try her again. Because the they had, the, they had all that issue with stuff leaking and they, yeah. it's sort of all built in. It's yeah. not like you can you take apart a spaceship yeah, yeah. once you put exactly. it together. So they had to just do it anyway. Yeah. And there was stuff running out of battery as they were doing it <laughs> and they couldn't fix the batteries because they couldn't get to the batteries. Oh. Yeah. My yeah. Honda 2001 HRV runs better than this. Okay. To be fair... To yeah. be fair to the astronauts, if I was in their shoes, that's probably all I'd be comfortable testing at this stage as well. 
<laughs> and that is it for the space news. Max, there was also yeah. just on the. I just think we need to give NASA a bit of credit yeah. uh, for the return yeah. stuff. We did ha- we did have a crack at them for not being able to get the the tubes back off Mars yet. Yeah, they yeah. have just successfully returned the biggest sample ever yeah. uh, of an asteroid that was circling near yeah. Earth and bring that back to Earth. It's landed now, and they'll have the biggest sample ever from an asteroid. It's been a seven year mission, so you know they they're getting there. I mean, doing, that's a doing, moving object. NASA does do that, some pretty, pretty cool things every now and then, don't they? To be mm. fair. What do you got? That's it for No Idea. You tune into 4ZZZ. Sign us out, go. Well, it is all we have time for. Thanks for hanging out with us as we threw some science into your ears and a bit of music in between as well. You can listen back to the whole show with the music and all the stories we've covered on the 4ZZZ.org.au website where you can also find a list of all the songs we've played and all the stories we've covered if you want to just hear us chatting. And without the music, you can find us in podcast form on pretty on most of the podcast apps now. Look for no idea that's no with a K. You're Max. Thank you to Max. Yep. Thank you to Peter. We'll see you next week. We will. I'm a goddamn marvel of modern science. science.